Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Lara Chan Baker. Hello. While Lara is deep into producing our 10th season, which will be a deep dive into the business of illustration, we're going back to our beloved open tabs format for a ninth season. Loosely based on our popular event series with the same name, for the rest of the season, Lara and myself will be coming together each week and going through some of our own open browser tabs, providing an insight into the creative industry from our unique points of view, as well as the Google search results that offer an uncomfortably intimate portrait of our inner lives, or at least mine. Using the internet as our lens, we hope to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life, but mostly a chance for us to talk a whole lot of garbage. Lara, welcome back. How are you? I'm really good. I just, I'm trying to save money and I just made baked eggs at home instead of going to the cafe around the corner. So feeling pretty uh, high and mighty right now. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing good. Oh man, baked eggs. That's a, it's a real thing. I feel like, you know, that often gets so overlooked in the whole kind of egg methodology of cooking with your poaching and your scrambling. It's the best option because you get all the tomatoey goodness. It's honestly the only way forward. Oh, it's so good. If you get it in a ramekin, also ramekin, fantastic word, fantastic vessel. But if you do it in a ramekin, you line that ramekin with a bit of cheese and butter, maybe, you know, you get a bit right. of a crispy thing happening. I'm going to call my firstborn child ramekin. It's a fantastic name. I'm going to get started with our first link of the week, which is something that I know is very dear to my heart. I felt very seen by this piece. Um, Hmm. And this came from a Medium publication called Elemental. I've just got to say, I don't really understand Medium anymore because it's like, I understand that there's like other people and other business use kind of Medium as a publishing platform, but then Medium has their own publications as well. Do you get this at all, Lara? Yeah. From what I understand, they basically aggregate it into their kind of own verticals. So like they've got like Elemental is the one that's all about life and well-being and human stories. And they've got all these sort of different other ones. But I think they are still kind of just aggregating other stuff that's been published on the site. It's very confusing. This piece is indeed from Elemental, which is their, yeah, they explore and fact check the weirdest self-improvement trends. And this one under the Optimize Me column is called, Is Life Better at 1.5x Speed? I would say no, it is better at 2x speed. It is my oh, you make me sick, Jeremy. Reference on this. <laughs> but yeah, the whole, the whole piece is about, um, you know, you can consume more content by speeding it up, but what is it doing to your brain? And basically, they're kind of referencing the study that was done regarding comprehension of when kind of lectures were effectively compressed. And at one point, kind of understanding and comprehension goes off a cliff, which they basically said was after 1.33x. Now, yeah, I don't know. We've touched upon this on the podcast before, and it's kind of something that I found very personally interesting because I do personally listen to podcasts at 2x speed. Not only do I listen to them at 2x speed, but I also use a feature called Smart Speed, which actually removes <sighs> silences between... You're disgusting. S- sentences. I know. And it's funny because, yes, I do listen to some podcasts at 1x as they were intended. And there was a whole kind of Judge John Hodgman episode about this and where Jesse Thorne, who we spoke about before, has very, very strong feelings about this as well, which kind of made me reconsider my methods. But I feel like, yeah, once I go to 2x, it's just really kind of hard to go back. And I don't know, for me, I feel that, I don't know, if comprehension is the actual goal of podcasts, I think there's kind of a difference in terms of whether I'm listening to something to actually comprehend it and kind of learn something or whether I want to have like more of an emotional experiential thing. I think there's two different types of podcasts or kind of audio content in that regard. But I definitely noticed that things did happen to my brain the longer I started doing it. Do you have that kind of internal monologue in your head at all, Lara? Of like people, I of very like much do. I never stop. Yes. Mine, for example, did speed up like the more that I listened to that, which kind of just gave a more what? frenetic pace You're like to my life so in general. You're so fast paced as a human. I can't imagine you sped up. That sounds dangerous and debilitating. 
It definitely is a bit dangerous. And I think that was a bit of feedback from me that kind of said like, okay, maybe I don't actually need to know all of the things that are kind of happening in my podcast at the same time. And it does kind of change your perception of time and kind of how fast it goes. But in terms of this piece, in terms of the, what it's kind of proposing, in terms of actually wanting to comprehend things as well, it's like I kind of look back to movies that I saw like as a kid or even three or four years ago that I don't remember any of them whatsoever. So does that mean that it still wasn't worth having the experience? Like, you know, because I haven't comprehended or remembered in that way? I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts on this, Laura. I mean, I were have you? berated you so many times on this show for this. And I mean, look, I'm not going to go into it all again because you know my feelings. I think that most shows are created with spacing, you know, pacing rather in mind, and they want you to listen to it in a certain way. It's like, would you speed up your music because you want to hear it faster and get through an album quicker? That's insane. I know. I know it is crazy, but like, you know, there are things like kind of speed reading, for example, which have been part of our culture oh, for the last I hate that so much. Years. I hate it so much as a concept. I completely, I really hate things like Blinkist that take like, you know, they make books into like a three minute snapshot. I absolutely hate that stuff. It just feels to me like people who don't want to put in the work to actually enjoy and comprehend something. And I just think like things move so fast already. What is the rush with podcasts of all things? I don't know. It kills me, Jeremy. I totally agree. I mean, I think, yeah, it, I'm at a stage in my life where like, I'm just kind of realizing that like, I'm not going to be able to read or hear all the things I'm really interested in or really kind of want to know about. And I think kind okay, of existentially, you make it I find sound that really like hard. You're like 90 years old. I know that I laugh at you for being <laughs> old a lot, but you're going to be here for, you've got a good several more decades, Jeremy, at least. They're going to play this episode at my <laughs> obituary and I hope you're, you're happy. I hope you're happy. Anyway, we got too many more links to go through. Laura, what's your first link of the week? Okay, so my first link this week is totally unrelated to yours. It's just a really cute artist that someone put me onto recently that I wanted to shine a little light on. So the lovely Samantha from our Corvid Slack community, she recently did like an art swap trade with this artist. And just side note, I'm so jealous of artists and how they get to do art swaps. It's always made me so mad. Like, what am I going to be like? Do you want me to write an email for you? Give me an artwork. But I love when artists swap artworks for each other. And she did this with this awesome artist who just goes by the name Clay Booty, which is great in itself. And it's a very <laughs> fishing name because she basically makes these little like bum characters out of clay and they're wonderful. They're full of so much personality and humor and she doesn't sell them. She basically makes them and then places them all around Melbourne. And if you find one, it's yours to keep. And they're absolutely adorable. And her Instagram is at clay booty, but then she also has a Patreon page where you can spend a little bit of money to just help her, you know, buy things like clay and pay for firing. And, and she sort of is also getting people to help her spread them further around Australia. And they're just, they give me so much joy looking at them. And I'm really, I love artists who use their work to just make something that is really really fun and makes you feel really good. And so it's just delightful. And I think everyone should have a look this week. And they're actually like around Melbourne. Like if you find one, you can keep it. Like, is that kind yeah, of... Exactly. That's the thing. Oh. So I like, I wish I could find one because they're so wonderful, but even still just seeing the photos of them makes me unbelievably happy. And I am so sure it will, you know, do the same for anyone who goes and looks at these. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm all about the whimsy. You know, Wes Anderson's new trailer came out for his new movie and like, you know, one of my Slack groups, a lot of people hating on it, but you know what? like the whimsy. I'm into it. I'll take it. I'll take the happiness. I'll take all I the love unexpected. Whimsy. It looks beautiful. The trailer looks beautiful. It just doesn't, it's just more of the same from Wes Anderson, but that's okay. I don't need anything okay. new. 
that can be a link next week. Um, my next <laughs> up for the week is a little app that we use here called 15.5, which you might be familiar with, Laura. And so the reason it's in my mm-hmm. open tabs is because I am in the process of filling my 15.5 app for the week. And yeah, this is people ask me about this a lot in terms of different apps to kind of use to, I guess, engage kind of small teams and things like that. But yeah, I just kind of thought I'd throw it out there because it's a tool that I'm really into. And basically... Tell us what it does. Well, it does kind of a few things. I mean, what it's generally centered on is this whole idea of kind of OKRs, which is, oh God, I don't even know what OKRs stand for. I forgot what OKRs stand for, which is um, key objectives, basically, of kind of... Um, objectives and key results. Objective and key results, which kind of sounds really naff, but also really what it exists to do in the way that we use it. It's kind of like Basecamp in a way that has different modules and things you can use. But the two ones that we use are basically this feature called of high fives, which allows us to just recognize people, recognize colleagues and other team members like when they've done something great. But it also kind of lets us reflect on the week in terms of like you can put whatever kind of questions you want there. And I find, I don't know, as a manager, I really like it because it's amazing. Like annual reviews kind of come and go so quickly. And I think both as a staff member, it's hard to remember the good things you've done as well as managers. It's like hard yeah. to remember what kind of happened like nine months ago as well. So it's this whole idea of just checking in every week. And I kind of really like it. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of at Jack and Winter is our team morale and kind of how we work together. And I Can't, kind of Once you got that, rid of me, yeah. Oh, fuck yeah, definitely. Thank God. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, I think, you know, we like to bookmark the week in two ways. Like the first, again, every kind of Monday morning, we all come in, we sit down, we take like a half hour, we all go over what we did for the weekend. And this, we use 15.5 to kind of bookmark that at the end of the week and we talk about, yeah, what are the things that we're happy about kind of what we did? What are some of the, you know, just recognizing each other's achievements. So we use it for this, which then forms our annual review process and things like that. But it, yeah, it's a really cool tool. I was really surprised that something like this actually kind of worked and worked well. So yeah, I definitely recommend it. And it's always got a spot in my open tabs to give high fives when we need to. Another thing to note is that the way that you guys use it there is that you've integrated it with Slack so that you can very quickly ah, and yes. easily kind of note, you know, this person did a great job with this client on Thursday, whatever. And it's a very nice thing for rallying the team in the moment. But as you said, all of that actually goes into a bank. And then eventually when someone's got their review coming up, you can see throughout the year, all of those little things that had been said about them from the rest of the team. And yeah, it's so, you're so right. It's so hard to do that without a kind of tool like this in place. Amazing. Glad you liked it, Laura. Your second link of the week. My second link of the week is a Vimeo link to basically a music video. This was created by an agency called Space 150, and they wanted to kind of do a bit of an experiment with artificial intelligence and neural networks. And look, the project itself is not necessarily anything like that new. People have been doing these kinds of fun experiments for a long time, but I thought this one was really enjoyable. What they've done is they produced a song with all the lyrics and melodies generated entirely by this machine learning model. And the idea was they wanted to see if they could replicate the rapper Travis Scott. So they basically fed lyrics into this text generator model over the course of about two weeks until it was capable of producing its own rhyming verses that were a good enough imitation of Scott's style, but obviously sort of coming up with these really bizarre, interesting phrases that they might not have and Travis might not have come up with himself, which I think is really one of the sort of fun sides of artificial intelligence when it comes to using it in the creative space. And they also made this music video where they like they shot a video and then basically kind of composited this like deep fake face of Travis Scott onto it. And while the verses were kind of being formulated, they used these additional neural network programs to actually create all the melodies and the percussion arrangements. So the whole thing was supposedly kind of created entirely by this neural network that of course has been fed Travis Scott stuff, but 
some of the lyrics that came out with I thought were awesome. A lot of them were about food. I really liked the, there were some that I really liked that just sounded like they could actually be pulled straight from like a rap song. So one of them was, I know you're talking trippy on my blade. I just want your first name, which I thought was amazing. But then it was also something about like, I don't want to fuck your party food, which I think is also incredible. <laughs> but it's kind yeah, of, the song kind of slaps. Once again. Sorry, the song, kind of, the song kind of slaps. Like I'm not. I, like I don't know. I'm super into it. So I don't. I think it's fun. Give it a watch. Super, super interesting. Thanks, Laura. My next one for the week is a coding app that is kind of put together by a team at Google. This is called Grasshopper, and it was created by a team from their workshop for experimental products called Area 120. And they say coding has become such an essential skill, and they want to make it possible for everyone to learn, even when life gets busy. And like, yeah, I was kind of, this has been there for a while, because like, all I want to do in my life is learn how to code. I don't know kind of why. I don't think I have the Maybe. brain for it. And so I like the kind of the approach that they've taken here in terms of like, look, they're not the first business to gamify it in any way. And also there is kind of something a bit sinister of just Google trying to raise a bunch of people like to learn how to code and eventually kind of live <laughs> in the whole Google ecosystem. But it's something I'm generally interested in. And I kind of think one thing that I definitely have felt both as a parent and business owner is that it's really hard to learn new things kind of at the stage of life where I'm at at the moment. Like it's hard to get that kind of time to, I guess, fit in to develop that part of my brain especially with all the podcasts I listen to at 2X. So this is something that's kind of in my tabs at the moment. It has a really great mobile app as well. Like I've done a few on it and, you know, I'm hopefully we'll do a bit more. But yeah, I think if you're in the same boat as me and kind of are interested in checking it out at all, yeah, definitely worth a look. Laura, have you ever done any of these kind of apps? Because there's others like Code Academy and others that I don't even remember the name of, but it's, it's a whole business at yeah. the moment. Code Academy and Super High are the other two I always hear about. I actually hadn't heard about Grasshopper. It looks really cool. I actually haven't done much in the coding spaces you have. I really, really would like to, but I do every year have this like sort of self project where I try to really learn a skill that has nothing to do with what I do for work because it's just really enjoyable to push your brain in, you know, into spaces that you don't normally have to. And it's kind of refreshing, but at the same time, you're learning something. And then I always find that those things actually do end up coming into my work in other ways. So it's kind of a really cool way to cross educate yourself. But I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show before that, or if I have told you that I'm doing this like entry level, they say entry level, but entry level astrophysics course at the moment with the, it's an online one with the University of Canberra. And I do not have a maths brain. I dropped out of math in year 10. And you can really tell when I start working with numbers. And it has been really, really grueling trying to get my brain wrapped around these concepts because I don't want to just memorize the formulas. I want to understand what the formulas like how they actually work and why they work. And it will take me hours sometimes of getting the wrong answer 500 times to get what should be a pretty basic equation for anyone coming into this course with even preliminary knowledge. And it's so painful, but it's so rewarding when I finally get it. And it's just like, I so recommend for anyone, whether it's coding or whether it's astrophysics or playing guitar or whatever it is, to just um, take advantage of all these amazing online educational resources there are at the moment because there's so much cool shit you can learn with actually really good teachers. Awesome. Yeah, no, really, really into it. Laura, what's your next one for the week? All right. My next link for the week is one that you and I battled over, Jeremy, and I think the battle is still continuing. I am it's 100% sure I it's sent it link. to you. You it think you sent it to me. I sent it to you and I know I did because some of the links I spoke about in our last few episodes actually came from this. But anyway, regardless, I'm still in your thunder. We're doing it. My link for the week is a website, which is guide.onim.co. And basically it's this 
incredible list of resources that have been compiled by these two guys, Greg Leppert and William Van Lanker. And I think they're designers. I'm not entirely sure. There wasn't a huge amount of information on their websites, but it's just this incredible, incredible gathering of resources that are sort of meant to help with naming, but I use it for all sorts of the written work that I'm doing. And some of the stuff in here is just pure gold. So of course they've got things like dictionaries and thesauruses, but then for example, they've got these really great thesauruses that help you find not things that are just direct synonyms of the word you're searching, but things that are kind of more tangentially related to that overall concept, which is really helpful for naming, but also maybe if you're coming up with story ideas and things like that, they've got really great resources to kind of check if your chosen name means anything in another language. I know we've all heard of those disaster stories where brands choose a name for a product or a film or something that then translates to something that are very rude in another language. All these kind of word generators that are incredible, some really good glossaries for inspiration, whether that's on like geography, mythology, technical terms, whatever. And I don't know, there's got to be hundreds of things in here and it just helps as well with like trademark searching and domain searching and other guides that people have put together on how to kind of name something and various tools and etymology resources. It's just insanely phenomenal. And you could spend hours and hours and hours going through the things in here. I know that I did. And there are some that I'm still using all the time. It's so cool. It is really cool. And yeah, like we're in the process of trying to name something at the moment. And it's so nice to have something besides thesaurus.com to use, which was always my kind of (laughs) go-to. Hey, I love thesaurus.com though. No shade there. You know, it's a workhorse. Awesome. (laughs) My next link for the week, speaking of companies that it could probably have used with getting a better name, is this music thing called AWOL, which every time I look at the logo, (laughs) I just see anal. I mean, am I the only person? I mean, it's just, it just looks like just anal. Anyway, this is kind of... Um, Maybe that's what they were going for. You reckon? I don't know. It's oh, it's just so close, especially the way the logo works. Anyway, so <laughs> there's a company near your office, Jeremy, that's called something like TVIS or TVTS or something. I don't know what they do. I think it's like CCTV stuff. But the logo looks just straight up. This looks like it says tits and it's the best. And every time I used to go to work, I would giggle because I'm a very oh. mature, you know, late 20 something. It's great. Sex, Keep going. going. Never forget. Um, so yeah. <laughs> AWOL, it's from this company called Cobalt, which is like a music industry disruptor. And I think, yeah, this was posted from Bianca, who, yeah, her partner, Dave, um, who sadly we didn't get to have on the show because of our technical glitch last season. But yeah, he really opened my eyes to some really interesting parallels in terms of how the music industry and our work is kind of very similar. So I was really interested to see this launch in terms of how it's, I guess, offers a bit of an alternative, I suppose, for the traditional label relationship for recording artists. And I think in terms of what it is, it's like, it's kind of hard to describe because I haven't been too deep into it. Basically, they offer artists a range of musical services without the artist having to kind of give up flexibility or, or control. And I think it really speaks to the fact that the whole kind of power dynamic in representation in any kind of field, whether it's literary, illustrative, or even musical, is kind of changing. And so I'm really interested in seeing how companies like are kind of changing the model because I think that's something that we're definitely looking at. So basically, they have lots of different services that I guess a normal agency would provide, but it's kind of scalable. And so it's like artists can actually, they act, offer more of a inroads for artists to actually apply and kind of submit their work to their A&R team as well. So it's, it's a lot more accessible and feels just a lot more friendly and open. And also that they have kind of these different ways that is responsive to where the artist is, whether they're kind of gaining momentum, breaking through or glowing global, as they say, and doing different things. So yeah, I just like that it's this very artist friendly model for an industry that I think hasn't always been 
seen as very kind of artist friendly. So I'm definitely kind of looking at this a bit closer and kind of seeing yeah, if there's any parallels or anything that we can kind of learn in terms of how we work with our business. And that's something I've always done, whether it's architecture or other kind of different fields. And yeah, this is one that I've never looked at before. So in my open tabs, well, for sure. Definitely some of the parallels that I saw were kind of with what we would have been trying to do with COVID, which is seeing that in our industry, there's a real gap with, you know, like artists of a certain level can find help, have that support, but artists who might not be quite there yet to be, let's say, like necessarily generating a lot of commercial client income, whatever, are left without kind of any support at all. And so it's like trying to sort of have tiers, separate tiers that actually really relate to different stages of career. And I think it's really interesting to see this done in the music industry. I definitely don't know enough about this yet to like, let's say, recommend it, but I think it's super interesting and to keep an eye on. And I think what's really clear is that they have taken three or four of like the biggest pain points in the music industry and flipped those. So uh, their kind of big thing is that at every stage, no matter whether you're kind of the lower tiers or higher tiers, of service you the artist own all of your musical work you call the shots you take home what they say is the lion's share of the revenue 85 percent, which is seems like a really a really big percentage compared to most other deals and you also don't have any long-term contracts at all you can sort of leave when you want and it's fascinating because it's not how the music industry has normally worked Mm, yeah, no, super interesting. Yeah, we will post a link to this and all the links that we talk about every week as well on our show page and in our show notes. Laura, what do you got next? Another article that we were fighting over, but this one I definitely sent to you. I feel like you can admit that. Can you? I can. Okay. I won't give up the other this one, was. <laughs> this is directly from Buffer's blog, and it was just a short piece that's titled Why We Removed the Word Hacker from Buffer Job Descriptions. And Jeremy, I sent this to you because I know that job descriptions and hiring in general is something that you put an enormous amount of thought and effort into. And it's, you know, you were saying before that you're particularly proud of the kind of office culture you have there at Jackie Winter, but a lot of that starts with hiring. And this was just really interesting as well, just because I'm interested in language and the sort of connotations of different words. And what they realized basically is that they had decided sort of earlier on that their employees were going to be called hackers because they liked the kind of DIY nature, moving fast and being sort of ahead of the curve sort of idea that 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 comes with the word hacker. But as they kind of began to grow and ramp up their hiring, they noticed that they were seeing like a really low percentage of female candidates for these jobs, less than 2% of candidates, which is, you know, very, very minimal. And they basically talked to various experts, in particular, this expert, Angie Chang, who is the vice president of Hackbright Academy, which is an engineering fellowship for women. And she kind of suggested that perhaps it's actually the term hacker, because it's potentially not as inclusive as other titles. And it has a very distinct personality and character associated with it. And so it can be tough for other people to identify with who don't necessarily fit that stereotypical hacker character. And so they kind of brainstormed together to figure out how could they say this better to make it far more inclusive and to hopefully so that more people would look at the job description and think, hey, that might be the right fit for me. And they ended up selling on the word developer for all sorts of different reasons. But anyway, you can read the piece. I think it's interesting. And I send it to you because I know that you care a lot about how the way that you phrase things in job descriptions will affect the type of people that apply. Yes. So obviously language is a huge part of what we do. And that, you know, comes down to everything, you know, certain words, certain job descriptions. I mean, the job description sets the tone for everything that's going to happen. And yeah, I think that's definitely, it's funny because I feel we almost have the opposite problem. I think like, you know, whenever we have applications for the role, it is predominantly from women. I would say like, you know, in 
every hundred applications we get, maybe only two to three are from men. And so I was kind of wondering, mm. and, and a lot of people often remark on that, kind of like, why is it? I kind of wonder, yeah, is it something in the job description or with kind of the way that the role is spoken about? So it's something that I'm just really interested in one way, but also, yeah, like, you know, we're always talking about language. And I think we have to be really sensitive about what every word means. Like people often remark at kind of how in-depth on writing I get when we kind of do training. Like, you know, I have a very specific way that I want emojis used or kind of where we use exclamation points or how sentences and kind of thoughts are structured. And, you know, the choice of words we use as well is a huge part of that. So this was, yeah, really right up my alley. Another reason I chose the link after you post it, hoping that you wouldn't have picked it up. <laughs> I always pick it up, Jeremy. I know, I know. Next up for me, this is my final link for the week. And this comes from a site called Cool Tools. And this is a site I've been having in my RSS for ages. So it's a site from Kevin Kelly, who's someone that I often cite. He has an amazing piece of writing that he wrote called The 100 True Fans, which I often kind of reference when talking to artists. Oh, about this is the same guy. As well. Same guy. It's kind of his personal Ooh. website, but there's also a bunch of other really great people involved in the site, like um, Mark Frauenfelder, who is um, kind of from Boing Boing, which is another site I used to read a lot, but don't anymore. Anyway, they have a newsletter, which is great, called Recommendo. And upon seeing the image that was in the header of this week's episode, I knew it was an immediate open. And so this is kind of for a tool. So this is basically just like a list of things that they recommend every week, basically. Nothing real special, but definitely kind of up my alley. And in this week, they talk about this device called an EZPB Natural Nut Butter Nut Stirrer, which like pretty much like gets to... I think my most existential dilemma at the grocery store, because like there has been like a peanut butter just surge. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in Australia, like especially at the fancy supermarkets that I tend to frequent, there are like literally oh. hundreds of different peanut butters. And it's amazing how something so simple can be done in so many different ways. It's like, all I want is peanuts and salt. Like that's really it. But always the oil situation is always kind of so different. Some of them, it's only the oil at the top. Some of them, it's kind of nicely mixed in. And so like for years, I have been trying to find the perfect peanut butter and I feel I have found one and I don't want to report back on that now. I'll come back to it later. But anyway, I mean, this the perfect peanut butter is the Mavis dark roast peanut butter. So that's just again. Yeah. This is not a time for debate, but I am just kind of pointing <laughs> out that for, for anyone else who has this kind of similar dilemma, this is a tool. This is a kind of my favorite type of tool because it's something that probably costs like maybe 20 cents to make, but that is sold for $9 and good on them. They deserve every dollar they make from this amazing tool, which is just to basically stir your peanut butter up. And it's like, I can probably talk for much longer than is warranted about this. It's a great device. It's this little, like just this bendy piece of wire, plus a black piece of card that you use to clean it, which I thought was mwah, fantastic. I mean, um, that's eight of the $9. That black card is really where it's at. <laughs> Anyway, if you are on our wavelength, if you listen to this podcast and you yeah, are simpatico with me on anything, you will definitely like just look at this and you will kind of get it in instant instant buy. Just like my avocado storage devices and onion skinning goggles and all the other things that are in my pantry that were impulse purchases from Spotlight. Anyway, Lara, take us home. What do you got for your last link of the week? Okay, so my last link of the week is far less uplifting, but it's a long read from The Atlantic, and it is a long read, but I, I do sort of try and bring one each week. It is a story by David Brooks. It was in their March 2020 issue just recently, and it's called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And it's a very long look at how the nuclear family of mum, dad, and 2.5 kids. It's very America specific, by the way, this article, but it's 
a look at how that kind of became the ideal and what the kind of family situation was before that and after that and where we're kind of headed now and a look at the disintegration of the extended family, in particular living together with extended family and how that affects different people of different classes and income brackets. And I thought one thing that was really interesting, which is a point that was making, was about how affluent families can essentially pay for the benefits are initially brought by extended families, which is, let's say, might be childcare or therapy or lessons or whatever that might be. Um, But as the kind of extended family has disintegrated, people who don't have the financial means to do that lose out on all of those things. And I just think it's really interesting. And I, I found this particular article a really good look at it. Whether or not I agree with all of its sentiments is another thing, but because me and my partner come from very, very different types of families. And I can't, you know, in Mexico, the extended family is definitely far more of a, a concept still where you actually really actively see each other and in each other's lives all the time uh, compared to kind of, let's say, like your normal, your traditional Australian family where you might see your cousins on Christmas. And I think it's really funny because we both always notice positives and negatives of both types of families. And this look at it on a much, much larger scale over a much longer time period is super fascinating. Jeremy, I know you probably will never read it because it's too long and you have too many podcasts to listen to, but maybe, maybe someone out there like me also enjoys some really in-depth reporting. Awesome. Thank you so much, Laura. Again, some action-packed links for this week. Really love it. Before we wrap up, though, we are going to thumbs up, hands down, shaka. The time every week we dedicate the good, the bad, and the other things that we can't find anywhere else to talk about because it's designed their newsletter template and we need to talk about it or else it's kind of <laughs> weirdly empty. So, Laura, do you have anything for us at all this week? Hell yeah, I got a huge thumbs up this week. My thumbs up is for the Netflix series, Love is Blind. It is, oh my God, so chef's kiss. Just mwah. If anyone out there is like me that they really, really enjoy reality TV, especially really trashy romance-themed reality TV, and then when it's sort of very thinly veiled as a social experiment, Uh, that's my favorite kind of TV. So this is basically a mashup between Married at First Sight and The Circle, two (laughs) wonderful TV shows, and all these people are kind of like the boys and the girls are separated. It's very straight-centric, but the men and the women are separated, and then they can go into these pods and they talk to each other, and they have these very deep conversations to get to know each other, and that's all they do for like 10 days, but they can't see each other. And at the end of that 10 days, they have to pick someone to marry, and then they basically go to Mexico all together and they see how they are as engaged couples, and then they get married four weeks later, and you kind of see if that's able to last. And I like to watch it and say that it's because I'm really interested in the human psyche and the, you know, the physics of love, but really it's just great trash, so highly recommended. It's fantastic. Speaking of trash, I've got also kind of a related thumbs up for a new series of mystery novels that I'm really kind of into because I, I listen to a lot of kind of stuff that's a bit deep and heavy. And sometimes I just need really to just clear my brain from all that. And so I really wanted to find a new series that I could dig into. And so the one that I've kind of settled on for the moment is a series of books by a guy named Harlan Coben. And he has this, he's not really a detective, but he's a sports agent detective called Byron Bolitar. And I just finished the first one and I was like, <laughs> I love it so much. It's so good because it's like, just because it's so close to what we do as well, because he's like, you know, he's an agent. He's representing kind of athletes. I just want you to say sports agent detective again. 
it's uh it's so the first book which was written in 1995 as well which i thought was kind of really interesting in terms of the weird cultural references that are kind of thrown in there it was like oh ooh, i kind of get it and also you realize man a lot has happened in like 25 years 95 i mean i was like yeah. two so it's amazing so yeah i don't know it's very kind of what's his name the alternative jk rowling guy um robert galbraith if you're kind of into that type of book you might be into this as well so a big thumbs up from me otherwise that'll do it for this week laura thank you very much you are very welcome good to chat Thanks so much, Laura. We'll wrap up from here. I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Chan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. And if you want more episodes, archives of all of our previous 90 shows can be found back at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive beautiful artwork, the links to all of our open tabs and any general Jackie Winter updates, sign up to our newsletter at jwg.is slash newslettering. You can also find us on Instagram at Jackie winter jets jackie with a y in winter like the season or contact us at podcast at jackiewinter.com if you want to hear more about laura you can follow her on instagram at laura underscore high res dot tiff or laura chan baker one word on twitter remember this is an enhanced podcast if you listen to this using a supportive player you'll be able to see relevant visual content as we wrap it on and if you work for an ad agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of open tabs be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info thanks for listening we'll catch you next week bye bye it's on it.